This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. Well, good morning. My topic today is the theater of worship. Which means we have to start off talking about theater. And I'm happy to say that all the people who I thought I would pick on today because they are either full or part-time actors or dancers have either not arrived or already, already left. Which is a pity, but the rest of you, some of you have been to theater, so you know a bit about it. Those of you who haven't, we can pray for you later for your deliverance from your cultural death and basic decrepitude. But basically, decrepitude. When you think about it, whether you are a regular theater goer or not, think about when you go to the theater, what do you see? You see a stage. This is where the performance occurs. This is where people are. Now, on that stage, you'll see some singers, some dancers, perhaps some actors, the people who give you the performance. There are also other folks involved in that production that you don't necessarily see. There's the technical team. These are the people who are responsible for the lights, whether they work or not, the sound, the scenery, the music, the costumes, basically everything that happens out of sight. Then you have the stage manager. The stage manager you should never see unless something goes wrong, but he will sit over in the wings and he coordinates everything. Officially, he's the head of the technical department, but he makes sure that everything works. He makes sure that the actors are all on stage at the right time. He makes sure that the correct programs are for sale before you come into the theater. The stage manager is overall control, making sure that the performance is exactly right. He takes over really just before opening night. Up until that point, the production is in the hands of the director, the director who works with the technical team and with the performance team to tell them how he wants things to be done. He's the brains behind the show. He's the one who tells the actors what to do, who tells the dancers exactly how or how not to dance. The director crafts the thing in his mind and makes it happen, his or hers. And then you have the largest group of people, hopefully, for the performance, the audience. They are important. A performance without an audience could still occur, but why? And so the audience is there. The audience is a part of that performance. They are there for a very good reason. They are there to receive the performance. And of course, all this is occurring inside a set of buildings, buildings which require finance, require some administration, they require the front of house people out front to sell the program, see you to your seats, security guards outside, people who are selling teas or other beverages, depending on the nature of the theater you go to. It's all part of the theater. Hold that image in your mind while we come to the other part of the theater of worship. And we say, what is worship? And this comes down to the crux of what we're going to talk about today. What is worship? You're here today. What is worship? 
for I purely because you're hiding at the back today. What is worship? How would you define worship? Living for God. Yeah, not a bad answer. In fact, we'll go with that for now. I'm going to expand on it a bit, but the reason for bringing it out is to stop and think, because sometimes we use the word worship in a very wrong context. Taps this morning, I don't know if any of you noticed it, because I know what's in my notes, I was watching for these things today. Let us stand and worship. Implication, while you're sitting down, you're not worshiping. Implication, it's only while the guys are up here with their guitars that we're worshiping. Worshiping, as Farai says, is living for God. To worship, to revere, to reverence, to venerate, pay homage to, honor, adore, praise, pray to, bow down before, to glorify, to exalt, to extol, to be devoted to, to dote on, to love, to hold dear, to cherish, to treasure, to admire, to esteem, to adulate, to idolize, to deify, to hero worship, to lionize, to have high regard for, to hold in esteem, to hold in awe, to look up to, to magnify, to lord. We come to worship. It's a big God that we come here to worship. And worship is such an all-encompassing thing that we sometimes just, yeah, we've come to worship. We've come to glorify. We've come to magnify. We've come to lift him up. We've come to idolize him. We've come to make him wonderful and great and huge because that's who he is. And to see the magnitude of the worship that we come to do, it's massive. In Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3, we read, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. As humans, worship is what we do. Whether we want to do it or not, we will find that we will worship. Worship is part of our in, innate being. Some of you instinctively worship soccer teams. We can pray for you afterwards as well. We worship political movements. We worship particular food styles. We naturally want to adulate, to extol, to give praise to, to tell other people about, to give glory to something that's important to us. That's normal. That's part of being human. You will worship. There is no doubt about that. The hard part sometimes is to remember what to worship. To make sure that God is so big in your life that he is the one that you worship. Now, as we worship God, we find that the more we know of God, the more there is for us to say about him and the more we will want to worship him. And this is why knowing God is so important. But as we worship him, there are two real areas in which we worship God. Firstly, we worship on our own. So important. One of our best ways to get to know God is to spend time alone with him. And worshiping on our own is vitally important. But today, as we look at the theater of worship, we're looking more at that group of people who are worshiping. What we refer to as corporate worship. Worshiping together. Verse 3 of Psalm 34, magnify the Lord with me. Not 
I'm going to magnify the Lord. You can magnify him too, but magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Corporate worship. Worshiping as a body. Worshiping as a group. Psalm 95, we read, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's we, it's us. Corporate worship is about what we do together for our God. And it's important for those of us who believe in God to regularly come together to worship. There's something which we can't do on our own. There's something which we do together. Again, soccer guys, you can watch the game on your own on TV. It's not the same. Yes, you get better replays, but you don't get that same thrust of adulation, that same real joy that comes with being with the other Chelsea supporters. I believe there are more than one, but just that the joy of together. Let us come, let us worship, let us kneel before the Lord our maker together as one. Corporate worship encourages us. It helps us worship him. In Hebrews 10, 25, we're told not to give up meeting together, but to encourage one another. That's what worship is about. So, is that what worship is about? Is worship primarily in corporate context for our benefit? Is it here to encourage us, to give us that buzz of worshiping together? Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher. And in 1843, he wrote a book called Fear and Trembling. Now, in Fear and Trembling, he looks at the story of Abraham, but basically he's saying, what's it like to come before God? What is it like to worship God? How is it for us as limited human beings to give our all to our holy God? What's it like to come to him in absolute worship? A lot of the concept of fear and trembling comes out of Philippians 2.12, where, where, where Paul exhorts us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And corporate worship is one of those ways in which we are working out our salvation. And in this book, Kierkegaard speaks of corporate worship as being like a theater, the concept of the theater of worship. So I want you for, for a moment to go back to that image of a theater and think about it in terms of where we are on a Sunday morning. The theater of worship, where we have a stage, we have performance, performers, we have a technical team, we have a stage manager, we have a director, we have buildings and, and all those sort of things, and we have an audience. Okay? Happy. You can see the theater image, you can see on Sunday morning, you can overlay the one on the other. And at first thoughts, that's how it works, because we think of the building much like the theater building. And we think of this raised area here, 
as the stage. And therefore we think of as the performers as everybody who gets up on here. So I'm currently the performer. Simba and crew, they were performing earlier. Taps, he's got a bit of a dual role. He's party performer, but he's also stage managing because he's got overall control. He's making sure everything is in place. And the tech team, of course, well, they're doing the light and the sound and hello video. Service lead, say stage manager. And the audience, well, it's easy to think that you're the audience because you're there, you're, you're receiving from us. You're, you're here to be entertained. And if we don't actually give you a good show, then you're going to be disappointed. You're going to go to the other church next week. Just like you can, because, I mean, it's, 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 it's a show. It's a performance. And that is not the theater of worship. The thing about the theater of worship, as we come together for corporate worship, is to just break that mindset and say, let's think about it as a theater, but it's different. This is not the stage. This is the stage. This is all the stage. I am not the performer. You are the performers. Everything from that gate out there to that wall back there, that is our stage area. And every one of you is here to worship. Every one of here, you is here as part of the performing cast in our theater of worship. You are not here to be entertained. You are not here to think, oh, that was nice. That was a lovely service. I really hope they do that again. You're not even here to tell your friends how good service was so they come to see the next show. You are here to worship. You are part of the performing cast who are here to worship. Now, just let me break one quick part of this analogy quickly. To quote from Johnny Depp, actors are paid to lie. You are not here for that reason. You are here to worship in spirit and in truth and to worship deeply from the heart and with sincerity. But you are the performers. So if you're not the audience, who is? We come today for an audience of one. We come today to produce our service of worship for God alone. Now you might think because you sit above the ridge that you're just ordinary people. But you're not. You have been given that role of being a minister to God. At the time of the Reformation, there was quite a shake-up in the Christian church. Up until that point, increasingly, okay, go back to the beginning. In the first century, the Christian church, people met in houses and there was not much hierarchy. But over time, hierarchy developed. And so by the time you get to the Reformation, you've got a professional priestly class who runs the churches, and everybody else who just sort of sits in church and they just do what the, other guy, what the other guy tells them to. They're doing it in Latin. It's okay. We'll just listen. And suddenly at the Reformation, that breaks. And the key leaders of the Reformation caught onto some key scriptures which said, it's not about 
the priests and the people. It's not about the clergy and the laity. And the concept that comes in then is what we refer to as the priesthood of all believers. As we read it in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are the royal priests. Now, I think it's probably a good reason why I was given this message and not rub or taps, because we are the royal priests. It's not the elders. It's us. We are the ones who are called to minister to God. We are the ministers of worship. We're the ones who give glory. We're the ones who give praise. Do not shelter behind the fact that there are leaders who will do things for you. You are here as part of the theater of worship. You are here to worship. Leaders have their roles, yes. They're here to help, they're here to lead, they're here to guide, but you are here to worship. Even in your mage stage play, you will find there are certain roles that got bigger prominence than others. For instance, you saw more of Simba than you have seen of Brian today. And you're going to see even more than, of me than you saw of Simba. That's not all good, but that's the way you've got it. But we're all part of it. Do not think just because somebody is in a leadership role temporarily or permanently that they are the manner. They are just part of the cast, as you are. You are a royal priesthood. We are all priests. We are all ministers. It's not them. It's you. He has made you a royal priesthood so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, it's worship. It's lifting him up. It's proclaiming his excellencies. We'll come on to it a bit later, but it's not just a case of, yeah, God's good. I like God. He's, he's a, God's a friend of mine. But proclaiming his excellencies. That's your job. And if you're going to proclaim his excellencies, you need to know his excellencies. You need to be aware of who he is and be aware continually of how big he is. I know we're all wired differently, but if you're wired to reading and to research and to taking in more and more of his glory, do it. Even if you're not, do it. Proclaim his excellencies. One of the interesting things about the Reformation is as that whole recognition of the priesthood of all believers broke through, somebody has pointed out that the Reformation did not abolish the clergy. It didn't get rid of the priests. It abolished the laity because the common people were no longer part of the picture, but now we were all priests. It didn't say we're going to break this hierarchy by taking out the big fat guys. It said we're going to break the hierarchy by stopping the little guys. And we're going to say you are priests of the living God. It is your job to worship. It is your job to lead others in worship. It's your job as a key actor in this theater of worship to be giving the best possible performance to the audience of one. 
All of you. Everyone a minister. Everyone is an actor in this great theater. And the audience, as we say, is God himself. It's not us. If you don't like the songs, that's actually not the problem. Because you're here to sing the songs, not to like the songs. If you don't like what comes out of Scripture, that's not the problem. You are here to proclaim the Word of God, not to judge it. The audience to receive our worship is God Himself. He is the audience, Him and Him alone. So if this is the stage and we are the performers and God is the audience, who's the director? Who tells us how to do this? Who decides how the worship is going to be presented to God? Kierkegaard in his original writings refers here to the concept of the prompt. Now, it's not as common in theater as it used to be, but there was a time when there would be a little box in the floor in front of the stage where the prompt would sit, and they would sit there and they would call out words to the actors, and then the actors would deliver them. Easier than learning lines, get the prompt to read the script to you, and away you go. And Kierkegaard uses the concept of the prompt, telling the actors what to say. The prompt sits in the middle of the whole action, often out of sight, and steers the production, tells the actors what to say, what to do. Immediately you can see that in our context, the prompt, the director, the person who structures the show, the, stru the person who decides which way worship will go, is not Simba choosing the songs. It's not Taps deciding what order we do things in the service. It's the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit and Truth series. And this is when we see where this message meshes in with that, because it's the Spirit who says, I want you to worship like this. This is an extremely special production, because not only is the Spirit, as God, our audience, He is also telling us what to do. So we are producing a private show for God alone, and He is telling us exactly what He wants. I don't know if any of you have ever been to see the Impro Show. Church is very seldom like the Impro Show, but in, in the Impro Show, there are times when the cast says, okay, what do you want us to do? And the audience just calls out lines, okay, so do it like a melodrama. And they all start doing melodrama, in the case, horror And it's just on the spur of the moment, the audience asks the cast what to do. That is what a theater of worship should always be like. Because on the spur of the moment, we should be hearing spirits saying, I want you to do this. Taps, I want the people to pray for each other. Simbi, where are you? I want you to go and pray what you prayed specifically for food. Listening to the director speaking. Now, in conventional theater today, we don't see that. Once the show is running, the director is out the way so he doesn't distract. But in our theater of worship... 
The Spirit must be directing every move. He must be continually with us. If we do not listen to the Spirit, our worship will of necessity be limited because we are limited and therefore we cannot know what He wants us to do. And if we're not listening to the Spirit, we will not be delivering what He is asking us to do. And we will therefore not be worshipping in the way that He wants us to worship. We are the worshippers. He is the director. And as the director, He prepares us for the service. A director in entertainment theatre works the cast for weeks and months beforehand to get them ready for the production. Spirit must prepare you before the production as well. When you arrive on Sunday morning for the production, for this theatre of worship, you need to arrive prepared, rehearsed, and in touch with the director's wishes. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, we're asked to come prepared. We're asked that when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And let all things be done for building up. Now, I think in our normal church service, part of this is fairly obvious. The music team, they rehearse, they prepare, they pray through what they're going to sing. The preaching team, team months in advance, have started praying through what are we going to speak about? What is the structure of the series? Who should be the right person? On this particular series, we were going so far up to that point, and then God, and we still don't quite understand why, said, change. Tapped an excellent message last week. He wasn't on the original schedule. But God had another plan, and we had to listen to the director saying, change the production. That's not the way I want it to be. But there's the rest of that. The one who brings the hymns, maybe it's not just the guys who get up here with the microphones. What about you guys bringing the songs? Personal beef? I find it quite hard to start singing a song, even if I feel God telling me to sing it, if some other person is whacking a guitar in a different key. I find that hard. And I don't know how we work through that. I'm not asking the musicians to shut up so that we can all sing our own thing. But listen to the director, because there are times when the director is going to say, musicians, stop, because he is busy telling Rita to start singing something. Each one has a hymn. Each one has a lesson. There's the prepared messages we have. But who is to say that one of you is not going to receive a message that you are supposed to bring? If we get stuck in our, this is the way service works, we start at 9 o'clock or roughly thereafter, we sing some songs, we do announcements, and then we have the message, let's not get stuck in it. Let the, let the director direct. Let him decide which way we're going. Let the message come where it will. Public tongues. As a charismatic church, we are open for people to bring a message in an unknown tongue. And then somebody will bring the interpretation because we're told in Scripture, if there is a public tongue, there should be interpretation. 
But I think a lot of the times we come into church thinking, well, Lord, if you want to give me a tongue, please do. And 1 Corinthians 14 says, when you come together, each one has a tongue. Implication, just like I prepared this message, did you prepare a tongue? Did you come prepared? Did you come rehearsed? Did you come having worked with the director in this theater of worship such that you are ready to bring that tongue? Did you spend time with the director over the previous week, weeks, months, preparing to hear his voice with a prophecy, with an interpretation? Did you ask the director how God would be glorified through you today? Did you go to rehearsals for this show? Or did you just think you'd pitch up for the performance and hope you'd still get paid? I'm an amateur, by the way. I don't get paid for theater. It's, 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 it's beyond me to be paid. But if all things are going to be done for the building up, it's important that all things are done in the manner that the director chooses because he knows how he wants to build us up. No one goes on stage unprepared. None of us should come to church unprepared. Oh, that's sore, isn't it? What would happen if you went to the theater? What should we do? Let's do Shakespeare. Let's do... Julius Caesar, why not? Those of you who don't know who Julius Caesar is, you lucky people. But say you went to see Julius Caesar at the theater, and the actor who was supposed to play Brutus thought, oh, actually, it's cold this morning. I really don't feel like going. How would the play work out? By the way, Brutus is the second largest role in the entire canon of Shakespeare's writing. So take out Brutus, you kill the play. But Brutus felt like sleeping in. Brutus felt that it's actually somebody else is, is there. They'll be able to cope. They'll, they'll be an understudy. They'll, they'll cope with that. If you're the audience and you decide not to go, you waste the price of the ticket. But you are not the audience in the theater of worship. You're a performer. You are part of the show. You are supposed to be here. If you're not going to be there, you need to have told somebody. You need to have checked with the director and say, is it okay? Do you have somebody else who can stand in? Do you have an understudy ready? I don't really like that. That's really hard because we're a nice, friendly church. We're kingdom people. We can come to church when we feel like it. And if we don't, that's okay too. And guilty as charged. Diminished performance, performer commitment leads to diminished performance. And likewise, diminished worship commitment leads to diminished worship for the audience of one. And he alone is worthy. Whatever you think you're meant to be doing on a Sunday morning, the reason why you're here is to worship. What songs did we sing this morning? Nope, I don't remember all of them either. Why? Because I wasn't committed. 
when I'm on stage at theater, I am watching the other actors closely. I'm following the plot closely because I'm in it, I'm involved. When I'm here for church, uh, I don't like the song so much, so I'll think about something else. Our commitment to worship is important. We are performers in the theater of worship, and God is our audience. Now, in a normal church service, or even in a church service like ours, there are certain key elements which are fairly main and which we would recognize in most church services. I think most services we go to, we will find singing, we'll find some sacraments, and we'll find a sermon. Preachers, you want to spot three S's. Singing, sacraments, in today's case, sacraments will be the communion and the sermon. And it's very interesting to look at these three things and say, right, what do these mean in the context of the theater of worship? Firstly, one of my private hobby horses. What do you call these guys up here? Musicians, correct word. You may want to call them the worship team, or can I smack you first and stop you? <laughs> you are the worship team. Simba, the worship leader. Holy Spirit is the worship leader. Simba's the guy who gets to work with this particular group of the worship team to help the rest of the worship team. There has been a movement over the last 10, 15 years to refer to Simba's role today as the lead worshiper. I can forgive that. It's not perfect, but it's better than calling him the worship leader. They're not the worship team. They're here to worship. They're here to give glory to God. And they're here to help the rest of us give glory to God. But they are not here to worship alone. If they worship and we don't, they have failed. You know what they say? A leader without followers is just going for a walk. Worship leaders, your job is to glorify God and to help others to glorify God. Not to glorify yourself. Not to prove that you can do a pretty good impersonation of Jesus' culture or Hillsong's or today delirious. That's not your job. It's not to give glory to yourself, but to give glory to God and to, and to ensure that the rest of us give glory to God as well. Pre-Reformation, you have a situation where the choir would sit in their choir stalls in a different part of the building, really, because there was this dirty great root screen between them, and they would sing beautifully. And the congregation would sit and bask in the music. Post-Reformation, abandon the choir. It's a bad idea. We must all sing. Or at least make a joyful noise. We must all come together. We must get rid of this choir because they've got their nice fleshy robes. It's taking the, the, the glory away from God. The glory is on the choir. We must get rid of that. We must all be together. That was one of the key thrusts of the Reformation. Simple tunes anybody could sing. Rich theological songs so you could sing your theology, you could hear the words, you could bask in the glory of God. And you were singing together. And for many hundred years, this was a good idea until we got to, well, our generation. 
where it's all about me. It's all about me. We have come to a generation, it's not the fault of the church, although maybe the church should have done more to work against it, but in our generation, it's what Francis Schaeffer referred to as the age of personal peace and affluence. It's what's good for me. It's how do I look after me? It's who's going to look after me? And we think of our time in church as getting our fuel for going forward. We find frequently an increased trend in our churches to make the places dark. In the Middle Ages, the churches were light and open. The light came in through beautiful stained glass window to provide quite stunning lighting effects perfectly naturally. Now, the buildings are darker. The roofs are lower. Most of you sit in a slightly darker place. Now, we are fortunate. We've got a nicely lit building. But the whole concept comes through of let's make the lights dark. Let's make the music loud. Then we don't have to see or hear anybody else. We can just be in our own little space, buffeted in by the sound and the darkness. And it's just, just me and God. And the rest of you can do your own thing with God. But it's just, just me and God, that enclosed space. Isolated on our own. But it's God. God's my friend. I'm with God. I put it to you that if you cannot hear the other people around you singing, are you worshipping together? If the music is so loud that you can't hear them, something's wrong. This morning I had the privilege of sitting just in front of Mark. Well done, Mark. Mark sings. Mark raises my spirit by singing in my ear. Well, that's what corporate worship is about. It's encouraging one another to worship. You need to hear each other. And by the way, everybody else needs to hear you as well. Do not tell me that you've got a rubbish voice. It's the God-given voice that you have been given. Use it. I did, at a point when I wasn't concentrating in worship, turn around to see the rest of you. You are here to encourage me as we worship together. And this is important. You're not here for yourself. As that whole insular trend has occurred in the church, we've seen the songs change as well. The concept of a big God who we've come to together has changed to a friendly God who I love and who loves me. For the theologians, we have moved away from transcendence into imminence quite dangerously at times. You look at the songs that we sing. It used to be that the great hymns had lots of we come to God. Now it's I come to you. It's a little change. And I'm not saying it's a bad change. But I think it's a change that we need to watch and be careful of because God is bigger than you are. And we are called to corporate worship. On your own, yes, you must sing I. It makes no sense when I'm on my own to sing we. But in corporate sense, we is part of who we are. But the songs we sing, I'm desperate for you. It's all about my feelings. 
I'm desperate. Hungry, I come to you. Only you can satisfy my need. We want to see Jesus lifted high. Not he deserves Jesus, but we want to see Jesus. It's like a two-year-old. <laughs> Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I, 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 I want to see you. Oh, my best, best. I will dance and I will sing to be mad for my king. It's all about what I can do for God. Ready? Sorry, Simba, you, you tossed it to me. I want to be a history maker. What happened about the God of history who makes us to be who he wants us to be? And then you redeemed yourself. You deserve the glory. We, we give you all the glory. You alone deserve it. It's not about me. It never was. We instinctively have been trained by our society to think it is about me. And as long as I'm okay, we're okay. But it's not about me. Personal encounter is good, but that's not what it's about. It's about God. This is not a personal attack. It's an encouragement to do better. Singing, sermon, sacraments. It's not just the, the way the lighting has changed. So much has changed in, in the church world as a whole. Before the Reformation, as I say, there was so much focus on that sort of hierarchical, structured approach in the church. And your central place would be the altar. Everything's centered around the altar because that's where they served the mass, the communion, and everything. That was your focus. The sacraments, the mystical side of things, that was where it all was. Come the Reformation, the guys like Luther, Zwingli, and the boys decided, ah, 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 bad idea. We need to get back to the word of God. So suddenly, the most important thing in your church structure becomes the pulpit. To me, one of the most stunning things in some of those early Reformation churches are these massive pulpit structures because the preaching of the word was central. It was core. You walk in, they just see this massive edifice because that's where the word went out from. And you see that in a number of churches, even around town, there is this incredible pulpit. Today, things have changed again. When you walked in this morning, what did you see? You saw Simba and his guitar. Because our focus has moved from sacraments to sermon to singing. It's not bad. But let us not lose sight of the fact that we might have lost something along the way and keep an eye on it as we go. Preachers. We've picked on the singers. Preachers, what is your role? It's not to prove how clever you are. It's not to prove how much of the collected quotes of Soren Kierkegaard you have managed to take under your belt. Your purpose is to worship God. Your purpose is to help others to worship God. It's been attributed to Spurgeon. I don't think it was necessarily him, but whoever it was said a beautiful thing. The role of the preacher 
is to pull back the curtain to reveal God and to hide himself in the folds. It's so easy when you're here to be impressive. That's not our role. Our role is to give glory to God and to help you to give glory to God as well. We are performers in this theater of worship. And it's about the, act, the actors giving glory to the audience. Hugh Latimer was the Bishop of, West, of Winchester during the time of Henry VIII. Now, those of you who don't know the history of Henry VIII, it's not important, but basically he went through a series of wives. Some he divorced, some he beheaded, some he just treated abominably. But at the stage when he was in an adulterous situation, Latimer was one of the priests who stood up and preached against him and said, this is not what scripture says. Scripture is very clear. Adultery, bad idea. Don't do it. It's a brave person who stands up and preaches against the king. And so it was on one particular day that Latimer found that he was going to have the privilege of having King Henry VIII of England in his congregation. What do you do? You've already preached a sermon which has said adultery is wrong. Latimer stood up and he said, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry who has the power to command you to be sent to prison and who can have your head cut off if it so please him? Will you not take care to say nothing to offend royal ears? And then he paused and he continued and said, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, before him at whose throne Henry will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give account of yourself? Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. Preachers. You are here to proclaim all of God's word. Not all of you are clever. Not all of what you think you can safely declare without getting into trouble with the people you think are listening. You are here before the audience of one. It's all about worship. And in sacraments, as I say, we're going to have communion just now. Why do we do communion? Well, because we're supposed to. It's a thing a church is supposed to do. And because it makes us feel like we're church. Sacraments, we really have two big ones that we do in our church, communion and baptism. Both of them, the core aim is worship. The core aim is saying, God is great. Look at what God has done to extol him, to lift him up, to magnify, to make him glorious. When you come to communion just now, it's not just a case of we're going to have some juice together. You have two reasons for doing communion. To give him glory and to help others to give him glory. That's what the theater of worship is. That is why we'll be doing communion together. Baptism, when you go through baptism, pray that God does not call you to baptism in winter. It's cold. 
But when you do, you do it for two reasons. Not because it makes you acceptable to the church, but to give him glory. To proclaim the fact that he has raised you from death to life. And to help others to give him glory. We have the singing. We have the sermon. We have the sacraments. All of them, the purpose is to give glory. And to help others to give glory. That's what we're here for. They're not here for anything else. And then we have the rest of the cast. Oh, we've got some lovely people here. There are folks who are giving glory in that room out there today. Don't think of them as people who are especially gifted in looking after short people. That's not their role. They are there to give glory to God and to help others to give glory to God. That's what they're doing. Kids church workers are worshippers. Tapua and Simba are on the door this morning. They are here to give glory to God and to help us to give glory to God. If you arrive and you get greeted with, huh, it doesn't help you worship. But as worshippers, you guys help us to worship. Tech team, you are here to help us worship. The guys who serve the tea and wash up afterwards, you are here to worship. There is great ministry in serving tea. Tea is worship. As you gather together after service and talk to one another, that is worship. You're allowed to talk soccer if you need to. But it's a time to glorify God. Because he is worthy. He is the one. What do I say? Worship is living for God. Everything we do in this place, this entire theater of worship must be for him. Welcome. Taking the offering and counting afterwards. Welcoming new people. Spending time in community together. Doing purple book. Taking meals to those who are sick and needy. Bringing food for the food bank, clothing bank. By the way, has anybody thought of the, about the fact it's winter? Just speaking of clothing bank and type things. Building days. It's not just having fun with the lads and burning some meat afterwards. It's worship. It's giving glory to God and it's providing the building so that other people can worship. It's not about serving the people. It's about worshiping an audience of one. So why are you here? Are you here because it's Sunday and because it's something you're supposed to do? Or are you here to worship? To worship God alone because he alone deserves it. Sermon, singing, sacraments, service. What gives more glory to God than salvation? What gives more glory to God than saying, I can see what you have done, and I'm really grateful for it. What gives him more glory than saying, there's something that no way could I have done. There's no way that we together could have done. There's no way that we could possibly have achieved salvation from sin, but you, Lord, have done it. What says worship more than salvation? The pinnacle of our performance in the theater of worship 
should be salvation. When we stop and we say, Jesus, you alone, as the perfect son of God, died, that I could be forgiven. When I had no hope, you died for me. As we worship, we begin to see who God is, begin to recognize who God is, begin to see how infinitely far apart we are because he is holy and we are not. And we begin to fall into the line of Isaiah 53, 6, and we begin to think that we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You and I are sinners. And recognizing that is worship. Surrendering to him and saying, you alone can save. You alone can start me on that new path to living appropriately for you. You alone can give me the strength that I need. That's worship. Today, there are so many parts of our lives where we have to stop and say, I need to stop playing church and actually start worshiping. Today, there's a time to stop saying, I'm going to stop pretending and actually give my life to God. I'm going to give him all the glory, not just on the songs I like, but all the glory. I'm going to accept him in my life. I'm going to worship him in everything. Everybody. It's not the leaders. It's you and me. We're all called to worship. We're all called to thank him. We're all called to big him up for what he's done. For I receive from the Lord, for what I receive from the Lord, I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. We're here to worship. We're here to worship under the direction of Holy Spirit. We're here to worship in a worthy manner. Because God is big. As I say, church history has moved things. The altar is no longer in the front. We now have two little tables down the front. God hasn't moved. As you take communion, make an act of worship. Remember who he is. The band's going to come back. We're going to sing a bit more. We're going to worship him. I specifically asked for songs at this stage that do not contain the word I. Because I want us to worship.
been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.